0: Welcome to Crosswords, the podcast about practical Christianity. What does it look like to walk in Jesus' footsteps? How do I live in a culture hostile to godliness? These are questions that we will answer as we get our minds and heart on Jesus. Good afternoon family, it's great to be here with you on this first day of the week. The year was 2012 when Clary received that video call that you see up there. Uh, We were living in Queens at the time and this uh, lady had found Clary's name on a Deaf Ministry website. She was living in Rochester at the time, Rochester, New York, and she was looking for a church that interpreted in sign language, and she couldn't find any. And she found Clary's name somehow on the internet, and she contacted her that day. Eventually, this lady moved to Puerto Rico and and still lives there. We met her a few times in Puerto Rico encouraged her to continue studying the word. And she continued studying the word with Clary on and off for a few years. And it was in July of 2019, seven years later, that she decided to be baptized. And so while we were in Puerto Rico, she got baptized and that's our sister, Yvonne Valcalce, who's probably watching the, the video here on Zoom with us this afternoon. She's our sister in Christ, Yvonne. And uh, this was the first time I actually lost blood while I was baptizing somebody. Because that beach, although it looks nice and clean and cool, that was actually a beach that I used to go to when I was a kid. That's uh, in the back part of where I lived in Puerto Rico. But because of the erosion and everything, there were now these huge, pointy, sharp rocks And so I was running into the beach thinking that it was all okay. I cut my feet on those rocks. And after the baptism, I had to wash the blood (laughs) off of my feet. But uh, yeah, that was a a great story uh, about Yvonne. Never give up on somebody. It took seven years. But she is our sister in Christ. Praise God. In Acts chapter 6, here we're going to see how the church responded to some challenges that rose from within. We heard our brother Charlie and our brother Nick speak of some of the challenges that the church faced from without, from persecution. And now Satan never rests. He is going to try to brew up some trouble from within the membership of the church. And this was the first instance when the apostles now laid their hands on a group of people in order to spread some of the responsibility and also some of the power that the Spirit had given them to preach the gospel. So we're gonna see the first expansion in this chapter of the church's organization, and we're gonna be introduced to Stephen, the first martyr of the church in this chapter and also in the next chapter. So start reading in verse one. At that time, as the number of disciples grew, Greek-speaking Jews complained about the Hebrew speaking Jews. The Greek speaking Jews claimed that the widows among them were neglected every day when the food and other assistance was distributed. The first phrase we read here is that that time in some versions it'll say in those days. So some considerable time has passed. The first few chapters in Acts are kind of close together. And then now by chapter six, some time has passed, probably a few years, maybe about six years after the church got started we could say and so some time has passed the church has grown the number of disciples grew and there were a lot of different cultures clashing here even though they were still 100 percent jew we don't really see the gentiles coming to the church till much much later so when we hear about greek speaking jews these are not Gentiles. These are actually Jewish people that were raised outside of Israel during the diaspora. And so they still were Jewish, very much Jewish, but they were raised outside of Israel, so they spoke mainly Greek and they didn't know much uh Hebrew. Satan tried to discourage the church with outward persecution before, but The church showed a resolve in their faith. They were not afraid. If anything, they were bold, kept preaching the word. So Satan tries another strategy. Let's see what happens when we put a little bit of heat from within. And so we see some cultures clashing here. Some brethren get concerned because members of their class or their nationality or their culture are seemingly being overlooked here. Maybe there was a little bigotry, you know, and the Israelites didn't didn't like other people, especially even though they were Jews, but they were Greek-speaking Jews, so they didn't consider themselves real Hebrews in, in, in their eyes, but they were. In the Greek, the word here where they said they complained, uh, that's actually the Greek word murmur or grumbling, also, also used in Philippians chapter two, verse. 14. So there was a little bit of gossiping going on, you know, a little bit of finger pointing, saying, hey, you know, who these people think they are? You know, they're not real Jews or, or, or whatnot. Sometimes these cultural tensions still remain in our number, even though we've come out of the world. We're Christians. We have a different kind of zeal, like our brother Mark was saying, but we're bringing also some of the world with us in here, and that needs to get resolved. Some of the experience, some of the problems we experience in the world, we bring them into the church and we have to deal with them in the spirit of grace and truth. And gossip sometimes is one of those things that we need to address, as Jesus said in Matthew 18. So the apostles, they, they changed the administration, as we're going to see in the next few verses. They didn't necessarily address the murmuring itself but they changed the administration of how they did things to eliminate that uh, excuse or the murmuring that was going on, which is an interesting strategy to deal with certain things within the church, a very smart way to deal with that. These Greek-speaking Jews were also called Hellenists or Grecian Jews. Uh, They lived and bore children out of Israel. Greek was their native language. And just a little side note here, a little historical side note, that's why the Septuagint was produced many, many years ago, a few hundred years before that. That term Septuagint means 70, and it actually refers to 72 translators, six from each tribe of Israel that were involved in translating the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek around the third century before Jesus was born. Uh, The rest of the Hebrew Bible eventually got translated to Greek by various different translators over the centuries. Even Jesus, by the time he comes into the picture, he and his apostles mostly are reading and teaching from the Septuagint. And it's interesting to see even in the Greek New Testament, many of the quotes from the Old Testament are direct quotes from the Septuagint and not necessarily from the Hebrew Bible, which shows us that Jesus used a translation. Albeit it might not have been a good one, but he he was using it, which is interesting. So verse 2, the 12 apostles called all the disciples together and told them it's not right for us to give up on God's word in order to distribute food. They were learning from the wisdom of the scriptures to set up stewards for this ministry, as opposed to trying to manage everything themselves. You know, sometimes men think that they have to do everything and especially men in charge think they have to keep their finger on every pie out there. But we see from the Holy Spirit that that's not to be the organization of the church, that there is a responsibility that the apostles had and that they had to pay attention to some primary things. And these other things were to be given to other people. The word here, distribute food, that I have underlined up there, which in some translations might be translated as serve or minister to, is the Greek word diakonia, a derivative from diakonos, which typically is translated by three English words in our Bible, minister, servant, or deacon. And so these men who are appointed here sometimes are called deacons, because they're so related to the word diaconos in this instance. However, they're never named or called deacons. They actually had a very special name. They were called the seven, and they were really assistants to the 12. So you had the 12, and then you had the seven. Very different from the establishment of the deacons of the church, as we ourselves uh, ordained a few uh, last month. The instructions given by Paul to Timothy are very different, and we see that in 2nd and 1st Timothy. But it's not right for those who oversee a congregation, as in this case for the apostles, to be thinned out by certain burdens that the congregation may be experiencing when it relates to this type of ministry or service. Diakoneo, these peripheral services that are necessary in order for the body of Christ to grow and be ministered to, should be the focus of other spiritual men that are appointed and responsible enough to be in charge of such issues. So the Spirit shows us here through this instance the wisdom by this revelation on how the apostles managed these issues and that's completely against some models that we see nowadays where there are more like preacher centered churches where the church is run by typically by one person and everybody everything revolves around that person that person is like involved in everything in the church and that's not really the model that we see here in the new testament So the apostles said, brothers and sisters, choose seven men whom the people know are spiritually wise and we will put them in charge of this problem. Notice, men are chosen in this case for this public ministry. And one qualification is given, known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. I want you to remember this phrase because we're going to encounter this phrase a lot in our study of the book of Acts, full of the spirit. And he was full of the Holy Spirit, it says. And so and so, full of the Holy Spirit, blah, 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 blah. You're going to see that phrase a lot, full of the Holy Spirit, full of the spirit. And oftentimes, some have associated that phrase to either speaking in tongues or doing a miracle of some kind. Those two typically are attached. But I want to let you know that that's not the case. Because here, these men were to be full of the Holy Spirit, were to be full of wisdom, and these men were not doing any miracles. This text says that there were no miracles involved or associated with these men knowing to be full of the Holy Spirit. That's an important distinction that we need to make as we study the book of Acts not to get confused with the charismatic doctrine out there that does not know how to discern the works of the spirit in the new testament or the ministries of the holy spirit in the new testament we're going to see two main ministries of the holy spirit the first ministry coming by power and by miraculous signs and wonders was to really uh, prove the word to be from the word of God and not from men. That was the main reason that these miracles and the speaking in tongues that we're going to see occurred to testify to the validity of the word of God. But there's also a secondary ministry, if you want to call it secondary, not less important, actually more important, because that first infant ministry of the spirit was to be done away with eventually as Paul said that was those things were to be done away with he explains in first Corinthians 13 but the real ministry of the spirit which continues to this day is the ministry of showing his fruit among among his people among the people of God and giving testimony to the changed hearts that Christ brings to us full of the Holy Spirit full of wisdom really is a person who is temperate, a person who is well-balanced, a person who is producing the fruit of the Spirit, as we read in Galatians chapter 6. The apostles didn't just want zealous brethren. They didn't just want wise brethren. They wanted both. (laughs) They wanted people who were full of wisdom, but also full of the Holy Spirit. And these seven people that are going to be mentioned here were chosen, were collectively known for their reputation under the commission of the apostles. So we're seeing here that even from the infancy of the church, it was quickly becoming impossible for the apostles to do everything that was expected of them, especially as the numbers grew and grew, as we see in the text. The, the, there were more and more disciples, and there were only 12 apostles. And they yet didn't know the full extent and scope of their mission yet. We're gonna see that develop as we read throughout the book of Acts. But this challenge was quickly presented. How are we gonna pay attention to everybody? And through the wisdom of the spirit, they know they have to choose these seven. Now, here's something for us to reflect on. How often do we personally, we're not apostles, but the principle is similar and applicable to us. Are we forsaking prayer? and the ministry of the word in our lives because of some apparent emergency or thing that is occurring. And you know we have to put out a fire here. We have to put out a fire there. And then all of a sudden prayer starts taking a back burner. All of a sudden, the ministry of the word, which first involves me studying it, me spending time meditating so that I can minister to it, that now falls back. Because, oh, I just got to do all these other things. Life gets in the way, right? As it seemingly tried to do here in the case of the apostles. But notice, through the wisdom of the spirit, they quickly put the kibosh on that. They said, nope, this cannot happen. We have to be devoted to prayer. And we have to be devoted to the ministry of the word. That has to be the first thing. Or the church was just quickly going to become some glorified club if prayer and the ministry of the word was not at its center. And so that's a big lesson for us to understand and to practice these principles for us. Prayer and the ministry of the word should be our top priorities in our lives as other things try to buy for our attention. We need to be full of the spirit and wisdom and say, okay, well, you know what? Let me organize myself so that prayer and the word are priorities." and other things don't try to get in the way. That's the lesson I get here. The apostles themselves said, we will devote ourselves to praying and to serving in ways that are related to the word. This is a word and an encouragement to those who govern the affairs of the church to have their priorities similar to the priorities that the apostles had here. Prayer, seeking the Lord in prayer for everything, ministering to our souls, ready to deal with the issues, whether it be the issues of the church, the issues at your job or in your family, who are you going to first thing every day? Who are you checking out with at night? Prayer, central to the life of the Christians, if we're going to make a difference in our generation. And the ministry of the word, they go hand in hand. You can't separate those. You're a praying person, If you are a praying person, then you are a studier of the Word of God and vice versa. They go hand in hand, two things that cannot be separated. The suggestion pleased the whole group, so they chose Stephen, who was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Right there, this guy had those qualifications. He's the first one on the list. It doesn't say that about the others, but it says that about Stephen. He must have been he must have been some exceptional person for them to say these things about him. And they chose Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenus, and Nicolaus. Nicolaus was interesting. Here's an interesting person. He was a proselyte, meaning a convert to Judaism. So he was the only one that was not born a native Jew, but was probably a Greek and that become a Christian in the city of Antioch. So in this verse, we're introduced not only to Stephen this wonderful brother who, you know, whose life was cut short, and also to the city of Antioch, which is gonna become a major center for the church in the first century. From there, the springboard of the missionary journeys of Paul take place in that big city. Eventually, the largest church of Christ uh, in Asia was gonna be in Antioch at that time in the first century. Interesting, right, how things develop here. Verse six, the disciples had these men stand in front of the apostles who prayed and placed their hands on these seven men. The laying on of hands was done to give these men the empowerment of the spirit. Even though we don't see that being said here, it is implied by what's going to follow next. I want you to keep that in mind. What I said before, Stephen was a man full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. Yet he was not associated with doing miracles of any kind. And you might be saying, okay, Pedro, why are you repeating those things? (laughs) Why are you saying that? (laughs) Because there's this charismatic doctrine that is going to have you believe otherwise. And if we're going to teach and know how to rightly divide the word, we have to see these things in the word so that we can know how to explain them. Because we're going to next see Stephen in the the text that we're going to touch on And now he's going to be full of the Spirit. And now he's going to be doing miracles. Great miracles, the text will say. Why? Why did before he wasn't doing them and now he is? What happened in between? Verse 6, the apostles laid their hands on Steve. And and if that's not too clear, when we get to chapter 8 in the books of Acts, that's going to be as clear as black and white because it's going to say it right there. The laying on of hands was primarily associated with two things. First, it was a, a way of sending people off on a journey or setting them apart. That's what ordination means. Ordination is to take somebody and set them apart for a, a, a special task, a holy task. And so it was customary to lay their hands on them. In Numbers verse, uh, chapter 27, verse 18, this was a custom of the priest to lay the hands on the head of a person in order, to, in order to appoint them for a particular office. So apparently from then on, all the Hebrews well, took to that custom and followed that custom. In the New Testament, the laying on of the hands is associated with the passing of the gifts of the Holy Spirit onto someone else. And only the apostles had the authority to do such a thing. If I'm an apostle and I laid my hands on you, you would receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the miracles, the power part of the Holy Spirit. But you, not being an apostle, could not do that to somebody else. Only came from the apostles. So understanding that, then we understand when the last apostle died, what happened? That was it. That was the end of the age of the miraculous powers of the Holy Spirit. It died with John, who was the last apostle to die. Verse seven. God's word continued to spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem grew very large. A large number of priests accepted the faith. So some time passes again. Even though Acts chapter 6 is very short, it's a chapter where a lot of time passes, you know, in between some of these verses. So between verse 6 and verse 7, I don't know, a year or two, who knows, Uh, Some time passed because now we're told that the numbers just kept growing. The disciples are bold. They're out there preaching the word. They're not being idle. And now that these seven were empowered to do miracles even more so, now the, the capacity to reach even more people with the power of the Spirit caused these great numbers to come into the church. Even priests accepted the faith. Let's talk about that a minute here. The priest accepted the faith. What does that mean? That's a synecdoche for believing, repenting, and getting baptized right there. We're going to see that happen in the book of Acts a lot. What is a synecdoche? A synecdoche is when I use one word or a phrase to mean something else. Like if I say, oh man, uh, that set of tires that you have is really awesome. You know, I'm not just talking about the tires, I'm talking about the whole car, but I used a part to describe a whole. And we're gonna see that that literary uh, tool being used throughout the book of Acts, particularly associated with being baptized. A lot of times we're and they accepted the faith, or they believed, or they obeyed the gospel. And every single time those phrases come up, what is it? It's a synecdoche, meaning they believed, they repented and they got baptized. And if that weren't enough, we have 10 clear examples in the book of Acts teaching us how people became Christians. And so, when these large number of priests were told here, accepted the faith, in some translations it'll say they were obedient to the faith. Some say accepted the faith. What does that mean? That means that they believed. They repented, they turned to God, and they got baptized. It expresses how the message of the gospel is to be obeyed, not just to be believed only. If you like this podcast, please show your support by clicking on the support link on my Anchor FM profile. You will find the link listed in the description of the podcast on your favorite podcast app. With your support, I will continue to produce authentic Christian content as the Lord allows me to do. We know that the word is believed, concerned the entire plan of salvation. To believe is to obey God. Faith itself is obedience, but faith also produces obedience, as we read in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, and in James 2, 14 through 16. And here's an example of somebody who recently obeyed the faith, our new sister Anne. And how does one do that? Quite simply, you know, if you are convicted in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that he is the Messiah, and you understand that you need to be saved, then you put your trust in him. You are baptized, which is an expression of submission and obeying the faith. You're giving up your life, and you're being born again, born from above. We die with Christ when we are baptized, as Paul says in Romans 6, Verse three and four, in order to pick up our new life as we come out of the watery grave of baptism and having the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's how the Holy Spirit comes to live in us. Verse eight, Stephen, this is where his story begins. Or actually, his story began probably a little earlier, probably among those people where when the church started to grow. Maybe he was one of them. He got in there and he showed a lot of zeal, showed a lot of faith. The people say, hey, you know, this, this guy should be one of the seven. And they picked him. He was the first one to be picked, maybe. And now look what it says about him in verse 8. A man filled with God's favor and power, with God's grace. Now he's described, before he was described as being full of the spirit and wisdom. Now add to that the grace of God. What a gracious man. What a powerful man. Notice, again, I'm going to highlight this. Stephen before was described as a man full of faith in the spirit without the miraculous part. But now, right after the apostles laid their hands on him, now there was an extra power there. And the same thing happened to Philip. Remember, Philip was the second one on that list. We're going to hear more about him in Acts chapter 8, verse 9. One day, men from the cities of Cyrene and Alexandria and the province of Cilician Asia started an argument with Stephen. They belonged to a synagogue called Freedmen's Synagogue. And they couldn't argue with Stephen because he spoke with the wisdom that the Spirit had given him. Let's talk a little bit about this incident here. It's interesting to note that Stephen's martyrdom was precipitated by Jews that didn't even belong to Jerusalem. In this verse, we see that these Jews who had started an argument with him were Jews from a Hellenistic province. And the name of their group, the Freedmen's Synagogue, when you read that in the Greek, in the Greek it's called the Libertines, which is actually a Roman name. So this was probably a fringe group, which more philosophical than theological motivations, as is usually the case with these fringe groups. This is an example of how dangerous A fringe group can be to the truth that we're trying to spread as disciples. They were probably part of a school of thought that produces the known psychological effect of collective illusion. And if you don't know what that means, look it up. Collective illusion is when a small group of people subscribe to a particular school of thought that suppresses truth and encourages very linear thinking or narrow minded thinking and they are trapped then in this collective illusion whereas they don't they don't really know what reality is and they think that their illusion is reality in this case the freedmen's synagogue they were thought to be descendants of jews that had been taken captive by rome to the city of pompeii but you know when we are in god's word and we are apt and able to present the truth with conviction, which means understanding and being sober enough to know that we don't know all the truth, that we need to get to an understanding of truth, that if I don't understand something in the scripture, I'm not going to make it up to try to explain it the way that I think it should be explained. That's not how being a disciple works. We have to grow in the truth and grow in wisdom. And that means that many times we're not going to know some stuff. And we have to be okay with that. Because sometimes we have to catch up with the spirit. But in these fringe groups, you know what sometimes happens? They have such pressure to explain everything and to articulate everything and to say the why of everything that they take the scriptures and kind of wrench it Into their own explanation of things. And so they assume that they know it all and that everything can be explained because that's how it makes sense to them. That's very dangerous to the truth. And we need to be able not to get caught up in things like that. And that's why they were arguing with Stephen because they were probably amazed by the wisdom that he was showing. It says here in verse 10, they couldn't even argue with him because they. He spoke with such wisdom, but you know what happened? They just got angry. And that's what happens when when somebody has taught you to suppress the truth and you come across an argument that you can't defend, you're going to react with anger. That right there is a telltale sign that the truth does not live in you. Because if the truth lived in you, You would just be sorry for people who don't want to accept it. But to react in anger because you can't explain something or because somebody has the upper hand in an argument, that is a telltale sign that you are in a fringe group and that you've been taught to suppress the truth. Verse 11, this is what happens when you're a fringe group. They bribe some men to lie just because they couldn't fight with Stephen and the truth, man, these guys were not interested in truth, were they? Because if they were, they'd be like, oh, wow, really, Stephen? Oh, wow, well, we didn't know that. That is awesome. Kind of like how other disciples reacted in Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, there were disciples there that didn't know the whole truth, and Paul explained it to them. They were like, oh, wow, well, Let's do this. And they got baptized right away. What a different spirit. But these guys, oh no, they were angry. They bribed some men to lie. These men said, We heard him, Stephen, slander Moses and God. And the liars stirred up trouble among the people, the leaders and the experts in Moses' teachings. So they went to Stephen, took him by force, and brought him in front of the Jewish council. So these men work in these secretive ways, secretly persuading others to put under like a carpet as in bribing or being suborned. And this kind of persuasion is usually brought about by threats or by money, you know? Uh, But if people knew the truth, when you know the truth, you don't need to be bribed to tell the truth, do you? Obviously, when somebody has to be bribed, the truth is not something they're going to tell. And this is what happens with fringe groups. They're biased, they're ignorant, they're out to advance their own agenda instead of God's. And they knew what most Jews would react to, speaking against the law, speaking against Moses. They knew how to get the Jews riled up against Stephen. What was the charge? Not too different from what they charged Jesus. Speaking against Moses, speaking against the law, Most likely these freed men were jealous of Stephen's wisdom and power, as it was the case with the Pharisees. They were jealous of Jesus. Even Pilate was able to see through that. People are jealous of what they can't have. Kind of this kind of jealousy is an immature reaction to something that seems threatening to you. But if you know the truth, you're not threatened. It's when you're ignorant of the truth and you're relying on your own wisdom that you get threatened. There is no wisdom in jealousy and covetousness. Some witnesses stood up, lied about Stephen. They said, this man never stopped saying bad things about the holy place and Moses' teachings. We heard him say that Jesus from Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs that Moses gave us. False witnesses who were probably paid or threatened. I know Stephen's wasn't trying to cause trouble there are some people that want to cause trouble. You know, they'll go up and start yelling and or preaching very loud and to try to draw attention to themselves. But we see that that was not Jesus mo all, nor the disciples. Matter of fact, Jesus says, don't say anything. And you know what? In those years at Friends Academy, I understood that. I understood why. I always thought, Jesus, what? Let the people talk about you and let them say it, let the, you know, everybody like with the Samaritan woman, bring everybody to you. I didn't understand why he said that until I was in that situation. Then I was like, oh, that's wisdom. Because I don't want to draw attention to me. I want to draw attention to the gospel, to Jesus. And if I draw attention too quickly, then what God wanted to happen is not going to happen. Because then the plans are interrupted by the world. And Jesus knew that. He he knew that if too many people knew about this, he wasn't going to be able to preach and to go throughout the cities because nobody would let him. Because the authorities would try to stop him, as they did eventually in three short years. They tried to pin on Stephen what God himself intended to do and what he had written a long time ago through the prophets. Yes, the temple was going to be destroyed. Yes. The customs were going to be changed. They didn't like that. (laughs) They didn't like that at all. And so everyone who sat in the council stared at him, staring at Stephen, and saw that his face looked like an angel's face. Who was there in that council that provided these details to Luke to write specifically? That last portion, this last sentence, that his face looked like an angel's face. Maybe it was Saul of Tarsus who never, ever, ever forgot the first Christian he put to death. Many, many years later, when he himself was converted, think about the times maybe the the terrors, the fears, the nightmares that he probably still had of all those people he put to death, the first one being our brother Stephen. And maybe Saul that day while he was sitting there in that council, looking with an angry face, he saw something in Stephen that maybe that that day he didn't want to see. But years before, remembering back, It was like he looked like an angel. His face was like an angel. And I voted to put him to death. The first martyr of the faith. Thank you. God bless you. Have a good afternoon.